This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. Enjoying a nice, happy Friday in New York City where it is no longer in triple digits So in the okay. U.S. <laughs> triple digits? So the weather, it was boiling? It was pretty, it was pretty hot. I know. Boiling. It was boiling for all of you that are in the... Uh, in the rest of the world that uses a, a sensible measuring system. <laughs> uh, okay. Who do we have on the pod today? Well, we have Dagan Cam on the pod today. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of AI Build. He's got a, a, a bit of a different profile than most people, I think, um, that we have on the pod. Most people tend to be engineers or maybe business people. Um, uh, Dagan actually started as an architect. And he was an architect in Turkey and later on became an architect of a very prestigious firm of Zaha Hadid Architects. And he would think, well, he would go on to do lots of buildings and stuff. Well, he does, but in a very, very different way uh, than, than I think he envisioned when he started architecture. We'll get to that in a bit. Because uh, about nearly seven years ago now, uh, Duggan uh, founded AI Build. And AI Build is a company also morphed a little bit. It made a large-scale or medium-format large-scale kind of printing system on a robot arm-based polymer printing system. And as a part of that, developed some software that is very, very exciting software to, in a very, um, well, time, cost savings, uh, higher precision way, allow people to print larger structures. And it's now, well, it used to be that you heard people talking about iBuild as the, the kind of things they made, you know, kind of these really large kind of room dividery type things. And now you hear people talk much more about their software and so the things that they're enabling other people to make. So that's, a, I think, a very interesting transition. And uh, yeah, so welcome on 3D Pod, uh, Dagan. Great. Hi, uh, hi, Yaris. Uh, very, very nice to uh, speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, anytime, anytime. Um, so, so tell me, like, okay, so you're an architect. You're a Zaha Hadid architect working in London. Everything seems perfect, right? So why did you why did you go through the trouble <laughs> of making a machine and uh, doing AI build? Okay, so let me start how yes how I started with uh, with the idea of three D printing and all. But um, so AI build was founded in two thousand fifteen by myself and my co founder Michael, who is also an architect. And uh, before that, I I was involved in research in London uh, at University College London, looking into um, 3D printing, robotics, all kinds of uh, digital fabrication technologies for the built environment, mainly for architecture. And um, before that, while we were doing our master's uh, at the um, Architectural Association in London, um, that was about 2009, 2010, um, it was a time when the original uh, 3D printing patents, like the FDM kind uh, patents, expired, and there was a big um, rush and explosion of new ideas and the open source movements with the repreps and um, all kinds of 3D printers coming to uh, the desks of researchers. And uh, the timing is very important because at that time we were looking into doing uh, all kinds of research and how we can advance the technology. And the first thing you do as a researcher is you get, when you get a machine, you break it down into its pieces and try to understand how it works. So yeah, that, that was my first uh, serious encounter with a 3D printer while we were doing our master's. 
and then uh, along the way we we discovered uh well first of all we, we really liked the technology like the passion uh we had with michael and myself about additive manufacturing and how potentially it can change the whole landscape manufacturing landscape was obvious from the first day mainly because of you know the, the distributed manufacturing models the new business model it unlocks and and specifically around sustainability like using uh, less material uh, using only what you need is was like for us uh, as architects, we designed very complex shapes, but seeing that ability to actually fabricate what we designed in the computer um, was was like a dream. So that's all good. Uh, but at the same time, we, when, when we started getting hands-on with the systems, we quickly figured um, it's not all good. It almost never works. <laughs> the, the failure rates are extremely <laughs> high. Uh, you need to you know, put, put your design into a slicer, which is kind of a black box, and it outputs instructions for a machine to work. So we started thinking, okay, um, what are the bottlenecks and how we can improve it so it can be really scaled. Yeah, so that was for me the starting point. Uh, going from architecture into thinking more 3D printing technology development was how we got started. Okay. But did you, at what point did this become like something where you're like, wait a minute, we should make this into like like a, a proper business? You know, was it was it kind of gradually? Did you say, oh, this is interesting, this is interesting. This is, yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden you were like, oh, I guess this is like a full-time thing now or what would it? No, it? initially it was uh, just experimentation research. So between 2012, 2015, we were looking into, okay, what happens if we put an extruder, um, not on a, a gantry system, but on a robotic arm, for example, and uh, you get additional degrees of freedom, you can create more sophisticated toolpaths, but uh, we didn't really have uh, a plan about what to do with it. We just experimentation at an academic context. In 2015, we started thinking, okay, well, um, th- there is an opportunity. There's a big um, business opportunity, but we also started thinking how how we can create a business out of it. So that's how AI Build was created in 2015. And as you pointed out in the introduction, we went through several changes. Uh, like while we were building the business, the market actually uh, evolved as well. Um, so it's a very different landscape today uh, than it was seven years ago. So in the early days, we had to make our hands dirty with a lot of things, including hardware development, extruders, robots, materials. Uh, while today we are exclusively focused on software development. Um, and the, nice. the reason, yeah, the reason for that was <laughs> at that time simply that there wasn't that many options to to uh, buy and integrate with uh, our software. But since the first day, our focus was developing tools and software for 3D printing. Um, and more recently, in the last two three years, uh, we we started partnering with hardware companies, and then uh, that gave, gave us the opportunity to focus on our core strength, which is the um, software development and algorithms, and so. I'm curious as to was there anything that you could build with the robotic, with the gantry arm system that you couldn't do with a traditional, traditional with a traditional like FDM printer when you were doing it. Since that's what you're exploring, essentially, right? Yeah, so, well, f- the starting point for us was robotic arm 3D printing because uh, we were mainly interested in large formats. Um, the desktop printers were just too small to print architecture uh, construction uh, applications. But also, the uh, like I mentioned before, we were really interested in understanding how uh, we can drive the toolpath in more optimized ways. Um, so, for example, you can import a CAD file and the slicer gives you uh, an instruction set for the machine to pr- print that part. But then you might be creating, for example, a lot of support structures, and uh, it might not be the most efficient part to make that part. Um, so with the robotic arm, you get a lot more flexibility uh, because it's a programmable platform, but also you have additional degrees of freedom. Um, so you can approach every point from different angles. So in a way, we were looking into 
printing structures in midair, like no support and uh, all kinds of crazy geometries that we couldn't print with uh, desktop 3D printers. So I, I think this, this switch to, because when I first uh, looked at you guys, it was uh, the hardware only. I think the switch, I mean, you, you're presenting it as a very logical thing. Oh, let's do software because it makes more sun. It's, 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 it makes more sense. It's place our strength. But it must have been a very difficult decision, I think, at the time, right? For sure. I mean, when you look at it in a retrospective, every, everything seems logical. But going through that in a, in a linear way, like there's always, there's always been a lot of uncertainty. Um, since the first day, it was a research um, uh, kind of driven organization I built. And we were mostly engineers. Like we didn't have much commercial plans just uh, intellectual curiosity was driving our company forward. And along the way, we were doing a lot of um, proof of concept type projects. For, for example, you mentioned we, we worked with um, Zahadit Architects in the past, and that was also our first client because we were showing them the possibilities and the new kinds of structures that we can build with, with the new tech. And um, the way we were commercializing it at that time was doing uh, production parts uh, almost as a service bureau. Um, not for everyone, but this like selected uh, customers we were working with who were helping us uh, push the technology forward. Okay, okay. And what are you guys doing now? What do you see your role in the market is doing right now with the tool? So at the moment, we, we what we are providing to, to the market is a software platform called AI Sync. And um, AI Sync is basically doing everything uh, from CAD. Um, so we don't do CAD, but uh, everything after CAD until the end of production. Our customers are taking design files into the platform, they prepare toolpaths, and they send it to their printers, they monitor, they do fault detection and re reporting and analytics. And um, the main industries we are working in are aerospace, automotive, um, construction as well still, but less, less than the initial days. So mainly uh, industrial applications, typically large format machines, both country and robotic printers, uh, we are uh, providing the software for these systems. And then, and what kind of technology? Because there's a lot of stuff out there on, on robot arms. There's polymer. There's, there's wham. There's a lot of stuff in between, right? Yeah. So initially, it was only polymers. That was our starting point. But uh, earlier this year, we also started working with metal DED uh, systems. Again, robotic arms. So uh, you can imagine the geometrical uh, toolpath challenges are very, very similar. Uh, but we, we of course, we had to go through some integration period to make make the platform work also for metals. So now that's for us the new frontier uh, going forward. We are um, expanding our uh, portfolio of machines that, that that's supported on the platform um, from polymers to both polymers and and metals. No, and no all, concrete. Yeah, exactly. concrete that was the first well. question. Yeah, yeah, concrete as well. But both like um, so the main difference in in materials is uh, around yeah the, the simulation aspects like understanding how um, that the, there's going to be sagging or expansion of material. But anything to do with geometrical uh, analysis is directly applicable to any material. Um, so. Yeah, at the moment we have customers using it for concrete, uh, polymers, metals, but also things like polyurethane. So yeah, uh, I think the common uh, common thing across all applications is uh, the customers are not satisfied with simple toolpaths, but they are looking into creating more sophisticated, more efficient toolpaths. That's particularly useful in industrial applications, like very large format uh, applications in aerospace, for example. Yeah, because the, the, and this is, I think, one interesting thing is because you guys would have a choice to either sell to all the OEMs or their end customers, right? You could be like kind of like the control software that working with the OEMs, or you could have maybe went and been more of a kind of slicing cost uh, software for the users, let's say, right? So you focus very much more on the control end, right? 
so we are selling direct to the end customers, um, mm -hmm. but we have a very strong relationship with the machine manufacturers. Um, so that's mm -hmm. a three-way collaboration usually, which works really, really well, uh, because we add new capability to the machines of, uh, of, of the OEMs. Um, so at the moment, we have around 23, 24 hardware partners that are shipping uh, their products with AI build software installed. So that, that's very helpful for us because the, the software we develop is very much driven by um, the physical outputs. So although we are a software company, uh, we have to do also physical testing to verify uh, what, what we developed is correct. And also for that reason, we actually have a big R&D lab in London. Uh, so in the lab, we have a lot of robots, 3D printers, and every day we are testing uh, the capabilities of the software. Uh, the new ideas we develop are being physically tested so that we can comfortably give it to our customers. And how many people do you support? Or how many do? Because I think for a lot of people in the the standard rest of the 3D printing industry, like they may not understand that there is a, a insane amount of integrators, first off. Then there's also just an insane amount of technology platforms out there that are doing all sorts of completely different things from granulate to filament, to concrete and all this stuff in between, right? Yeah, I think the, the market is growing at a, at a really high rate. Um, like the, the, the time we started, there was the market was almost non-existent. Um, mm -hmm. But now there are like really good players in the market pushing the boundaries from all perspectives. Materials development, there being materials only for um, materials developed only for uh, large format applications, for example, like low CT materials and uh, the kind of things that you would put in the autoclave. And um, mm -hmm. same is happening with the machine manufacturer side. So. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the uh, numbers in in my head at the moment, but uh, we can see very clearly that the market is like rapidly shifting, uh, growing uh, year after year. And are there any growth areas that you're uh, um, that you're in particularly interested in, let's say? Or, or are you like going to just be everyone? We're, we're, you know, uh, yeah. is there a focus? <laughs> you know, because I think, like, I mean, in the back of everyone's head, I think everyone that's listening to this is like, oh my God, these guys, are they going to write, they're like the Microsoft of this, right? Yeah. Um, but, and that looks retroactively, that looks really logical. Uh, yeah. But I think in the, you only have so many uh, developers, you only have so much time of day. You know, there's always going to be a question of you saying, we can take one more concrete guy or one more polymer guy. Is there going to be a focus area? Or are you just going to try and do it all? Or, or what's the thing? So fortunately, there are a lot of similarities between um, extrusion-based, for example, technologies that could be concrete, polymer, uh, even metal deposition. There are a lot of similarities, so we don't need to multiply uh, the amount of developers for each material. But of course, there are different types of uh, 3D printing as well, things like SLS, SLA, laser powder bed, fusion. So there are things that we haven't started working on yet. Um, longer term, yes, probably we will start integrating with those machines as well. But um, the... Uh, benefits we are bringing to the end customer. Um, so these are like big organizations in automotive, for example. You can imagine they have maybe 20 different types of 3D printers in the organization. And each of these 3D printers are coming with their own slicer software and control software. So the, it, it, it's very difficult for uh, factory managers and, and production engineers um, to, to, to be an expert in all, all these platforms. And what we are offering to these customers is one platform that integrates with as many uh, 3D printers as we have integrated with. And then that gives them much better visibility into how their additive manufacturing is going, uh, what kind of uh, yeah, return on investment they're getting in, in their production and so on. Mm -hmm. But right now you've focused on, on industrial size printers. You're not dealing with like desktop printers or something of that. We, so, I mean, the important thing for everything? us is it needs to be an industrial enterprise type application. customer application. Um, so we do have exceptions, like we have some desktop printers as well on the on the system. Uh, 
but the reason for that is to be able to better serve our enterprise customers uh, because they as i explained they want to have this uh, holistic approach to their manufacturing uh, they don't want to go through multiple platforms to manage production you know what is the problem you solve for these end consumers because uh, it's actually from a technical perspective what we noticed uh, a couple of years ago actually was everybody had the problems with the memory of the robot right everybody had the problem that the kml robot the, the language of the kuka robot was different than the yaskawa one which was different than uh the uh whatever you know other uh the abb robot right so all these things were different and also kind of at the same time that there was no really interconnected between the thing on the nozzle or the, you know, whatever printing thing there was and the arm, right? So those are the big problems. Have you solved these or are you, you know, moving towards solving these things or? Yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right. So in uh, robotic 3D printing, especially, there are no standards. So it's very different than like buying a 3D printer from, uh, from a desktop printer company. Everything comes uh, ready to print, but with... Um, Robotic 3D printing, uh, although there are some turnkey system providers, uh, there are no standards. Um, so everyone is kind of using their own flavor of G-code, or in some cases, they're even using native languages of the robot brands like KUKA, ABB, and, and the communication protocols between the systems. So you might have a program running on the extruder, another program on the robots, but they don't talk to each other and weird things like that. Yeah, over the many years, we integrated with so many robots and so many extruders. Now we have a really good uh, library uh, of integrations. And uh, every time we come across a new system, uh, yeah, it takes us some time to integrate with, uh, depending on the level of integration we are aiming for. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 I think, one of the things that will evolve over time. Uh, as the industry matures, we are going to reach some form of standards. And uh, yeah, we are trying to support that uh, in the community. Okay, and, and how big are you, you guys want to say anything about your size? Like how big you are in terms of like the size of the company or that kind of thing? Or um, At the moment, we are 24 people. We recently went through our seed funding round, so we'll be growing in the coming months. Yeah, at the moment, we are looking very much into getting our, our first uh, big customers on board, supporting them and growing with them as their manufacturing grows. And you guys are based in London, right? Is that okay? London is a really cool place to be, but it's also a very <laughs> expensive place to live, right? So, is that is that you know? Do you think that that London really gives you the best talent in the world, or is it really an expensive place to do business, or um, a place to get VC? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's good for VC, but um, we are quite distributed actually. Uh, I think around half of us are based in London, and the rest of the UK. Uh, the, the the other half is all around the world. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, especially after COVID, like things became so so much different. Now we adapted um, to the new world. So that that's not a um, is is it's true that yeah the the life is more expensive and uh, everything costs more. But also it's a big advantage because there's a big talent pool in London um, and other capitals also in Europe, not not only London, like in uh, in the US as well. Um, so um, there are benefits and uh, disadvantages. Right, because you actually do need a physical space at the end of the day. To- yeah, machines to test stuff. Yeah. yeah, Like now, I hear a lot of good things about you when I ask people about you, or if I just ask people like generally, what's the best software for robot arm printing? Generally, I, I hear really good things about you guys. But how did you manage to get trusted in that? Because you are kind of you're telling someone, "Oh, don't worry about the software. We got this." Right? And it turns to me like that. The, the the key thing here is trust, right? How do you get these first customers to trust you uh, in that sense? So I think the the reason our customers and also hardware partners trust us is um, we went through it ourselves. Like 
it's not it's not a software that we are developing in isolation uh, but we actually built our own hardware in the past and we did production with it and the software is physically tested uh, in uh, very um, difficult scenarios like uh, the, the complex toolpaths that I explained before and uh, because of that we, we are building a really strong uh, relationship with the hardware partners then they're able to uh, refer us to their customers for example they say uh, this software is really adding value to our machine so you could you could use it and then uh, well with the word of mouth once once you start going to market everything uh, becomes more accelerated approximately how many licenses have you guys issued so far for the software <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we have disclosed that ever. <laughs> but well, it's it's Fair probably enough. safe to say um, eight or nine of the Fortune 500 companies are our customers today. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's oh, okay. Good. So that's good. Yeah, that's, that's cool. cool. Uh, what? Are, well, let's talk a little bit about the software itself. I mean, because like uh, to me, there's two like well, there's a couple of really distinct things. So one of it is this integration challenge of all these different things and also they're also talking about you have to work with these people you have to negotiate with them you have to partner with them right that to me just seems like a, this really spaghetti that you have to unwind problem you know or like like kind of like getting your speaker cable or your headphone cables unclogged all the time because you have to work for kuka you have to work for uh uh you know fanuk uh Staubli, whatever right and then at the same time you have to work for all these different extrusions is there ways where you can win or, or get really kind of like develop things that are going to give you a permanent advantage in doing that integration battle? Because to me, that's the, 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 the thing that no one wants to do, you know? For sure. I mean, the, uh, every time, like the first time we come across a new type of extruder or a new type of robot, we like to get it in our factory. Um, and one of the benefits of having this strong relationship with the partners is they're open to uh, sending us their machines. Um, so we have an integration period with each new system. But um, after we finish that first integration, which might take two months, three months, uh, depending on the complexity, um, we don't need to physically intervene anymore because we already have uh, verified the communication protocol is working, uh, the file format is right, and the robot is doing what we are telling it to do. So it's not, it's not any like initially it was a big, barrier for us uh, because we had to integrate with so many robots we haven't seen before but now as i said we have a big library of systems that we previously integrated with so that's that's helping um yeah the future integrations um, now it's significantly faster uh, and what we were seeing initially in these robots was that everyone was working on kind of what we call in the desktop world vase mode, right? Uh, so everybody was trying to either so i no seriously it was all either, no, there, either was a, there was a I was gonna say I remember the web. There was like a website that you could make STL vases out of at mm -hmm. one point. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Uh, anyway, but these large format, medium format guys were either doing. They were only going from one layer and then back. So there was this big kind of like kind of concentrations of material at the end of each layer, right? Or they were doing vase mode. That was all they were doing. Or they didn't have enough memory in the robot, so they were only repeating the same design over and over again. <laughs> so it wasn't like one vase. It was like you know, a, a copy of the vase, you know? So, you know, so this tool pathing thing, that to me seems the best opportunity for you guys to be able to to say, you know what, we have the best tool pathing, you know? No, that, that was a question. I mean, do you? I mean, uh, how, how did you work on this? <laughs> yeah, so initially we did print some vases, uh, for sure, a lot of vases. And uh, I think the reason for that is, so it's it's accepting errors. Like, you, like when you print a vase, uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how thick you print it. Um, it, it will just be fine. Um, but once you add another line next to the, like when you have double walls, for example, then the extrusion amount matters. Um, so that's probably why like it's it's the simpler shape to start printing with. But as you said, like the toolpathing software, like the capabilities of your um, software is is 
pretty much driving everything that you print. So if, if the slicer is outputting only horizontal layers, you will be only printing horizontal parts. Or if, if the slicer is only creating phase mode, then um, you only print phase. So um, while we are going through a lot of these uh, applications, like proof of concept projects, we started seeing patterns. And we, we always try to kind of generalize what we are doing for this project. OK, what kind of uh, algorithm we can create so that it can be applied on other um, applications as well. Um, so from the first day, that, that was the goal for us, making the technology more accessible. And uh, everything we develop should be used uh, as, a, as, a, as a resource. Okay, okay. And, 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 and when you guys got started, this AI build, right, that whole thing comes from the fact that you got a camera and you were, um, you know, you were basically like looking at what the printer did and you were going to modulate like tool pass on the fly. Is that something that you still do or is that something that fell by the wayside uh, yeah. lately? So AI thing is actually uh, has two parts. We mainly talk about tool passing now, but the second part uh, I explained in the, in the beginning is after you have a tool pass, what do you do with it? So um, typically from a slicer, you would export a G-code file, upload it on a machine, and then uh, you, you kind of lost control after that point. But in our case, uh, we have another product called AI Sync Pro, uh, which is like an upgraded version, a better version of AI Sync, um, which takes the tool pass we created on the platform and streams it to the machine over the cloud. And not only stream instructions, but also uh, start collecting data back in real time. And the advantage of that is we can start looking all the sensor logs and the camera feeds and start ident identifying defects, uh, for example. Um, and if you see any defect that, uh, that wasn't planned, uh, none of the defects are planned, but um, if, if you see that we are um, creating an output that that wasn't uh, in the original toolpath, then we can highlight it to the user using artificial intelligence, but also learn from it so we can do our future production better with that data. Um, so this is very much in development still. Um, so one of the benefits of her having our own hardware in the lab is we get to experiment with a lot of sensors and cameras. Like we can insert whatever we want into the machine without viol violating anyone's warranties. And with that, we, we build very complex systems now that can look at, for example, previous layer temperature, or it can look at uh, if there is any warping in the bed and and the temperature at the bed and things like that. So we we, we are adding uh, real time quality assurance capabilities to the platform uh, using machine learning. That to me is well something that, that I think could really differentiate you if you could make that into a permanent kind of you can make that into a permanent advantage. It seems to be a thing that maybe more data drives more learning drives better algorithms could be like kind of like a permanent kind of advantage for you guys right 100 percent. i mean if you go back and start like well okay why are we doing all of this is mm -hmm. um at the beginning i said the 3d printers almost never work uh they, they are so error prone like it mm -hmm. there is a very big dependency on uh experienced human labor uh, like you need to be really an expert in, especially if you are doing something like multi-axis, like you need to use not only slicers, but also things like CAM uh, platforms, where you would almost design your toolpath manually and uh, mm -hmm. then do a lot of physical trial and error uh, to see that it doesn't work. And then you would go back to your design, maybe change it. So there's so much uh, dependency on this human uh, experience. Uh, mm -hmm. that we are trying to eliminate. So the process should be fully automated, only then it can scale. And uh, to be able to achieve that, the first part is toolpathing. Uh, first, we need to have a very complex, efficient, uh, automatically generated toolpath, but also uh, making sure that the machine is actually doing what we told it to do. Um, so that's the second part we are developing, which is uh, real-time um, error correction and, and quality control. 
Yeah. And also, you guys decided to, well, we have in 3D printing, like, kind of, like, two modes. Like, you have a bunch of people that, like, kind of bootstrap their business, right? And they don't, then we have, like, the American, kind of more California startup, where they're like, give us 300 million, right? And you guys, and, and we, we tend to kind of, like, facilitate, and we talk to people who are doing either one or the other. But you guys are kind of gone in the middle, where you started off very bootstrappy, very kind of, like, living from kind of innovation fund to innovation fund, like, very frugally, right? With uh, with your equity and also with with uh, just the resources, and you raised I think it was one million, and later on you raised another like three million or something like that. So you've kind of raised money, but haven't really, you know, gone into the crazy mode. Is that is that because you want, you know, you want just the money you need, or what's what's the rationale there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. We the primary goal goal for us, like since the first investment, is to build a sustainable business. So of course there are crazy um, valuations happening and a lot of money being raised, and then we see companies failing because there isn't a proper plan to uh, build a success successful uh, sustainable business. Not only sustainable business, but also sustainable products. Like we we see they don't even have customers. Like no one verified the technology works. Uh, we are building it in a much more organic way. Um, so. Uh, like you said, we only raise as much money as we need. Um, so mm -hmm. initially, we didn't need any money to do experimentation in our small workshop. Then we needed some money to go from like five people to 10, 15 people. Then we needed some more. And yeah, so we, we like to go because the market is so everything is uh, kind of uncertain and evolving and changing all the time. Uh, it doesn't make sense to dedicate too much resource into one area. I mean, up until now, we figured it as we went. Uh, but after now, I think since we uh, became a pure software organization, um, things look uh, a bit more clear, uh, a lot more clear, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think also I think what's interesting is that we usually have people that are either entrepreneurs or just like, yeah, let's let's go do the entrepreneurial thing, you know, or or we have you know we do have a lot quite a lot of scientists and stuff that that kind of like invent something they're like, oh god, I have to commercialize it. But you kind of like you said it before, you like kind of curiosity driven. You ended up in a business. And and you're an architect. I mean, you didn't. I don't know that I know that I have a business degree or have like ambitions to be an entrepreneur. Apart from maybe having your own architectural office. So was there a point where you're like, oh my god, I'm in like a an, an entrepreneur. I don't want to be. Or or have you just taken it day by day and you're growing? Or, or how does that? How was how what was that like? Um. Yeah, I think you are right. So some people start companies just to grab a big business and uh, make a lot of money out of it. In our case, it was more. Um, um, curiosity driven uh, initially so we um, but after you reach a certain level like once you start getting real customers and they're asking you to do more um, then um, you have to start thinking commercially because otherwise you'll be disappointing your customers um, so yeah I think now we are at going through some critical times like we are going from uh, R&D type organization to a scale up um, software company, uh, which, uh, so at the moment we have very ambitious plans for the future. So yeah, uh, I think it, it, it probably had to do with the, um, with the timing, uh, to our markets. Like, uh, as I explained, we didn't have hardware partners to partner with initially. Now we do. Um, so, and also, uh, in the, in the end customer, uh, side, uh, we see big organizations, uh, actually using their industrial 3D printers to make production parts. And that changes yeah. everything. So it goes, the 3D prints are going from R&D labs to uh, actual production. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think as, as the market evolves and as our partners evolve, uh, we are also becoming more uh, focused on uh, yeah, high, high growth and sustainability. Are you learning a lot? Are you reading business books? Or are you just like, uh, I'll make it this? I mean, you know what I mean? 
uh, learning every day a lot, and uh, uh-huh. not only learning, but also bringing into the team uh, a lot of experts that that know a lot better than us. Uh, um, so especially commercially, like when we are going to markets, now we have a really strong uh, leadership team, uh, and the same is happening on the engineering team. Like, okay, we are architects and we built it. We built the initial product, but now we, we need experts in all areas, like in data science, in uh, material science, software engineering. Um, so we are trying to get the best talent in uh, wherever we need um, to um, uh, get to close our own uh, uh, gaps. Okay, okay. And, and, and if we're looking forward, where do you want to be in like five years? What's the, what's the goal here? Or what's the goal you think you have now? So at the at the trajectory that we are in now, uh, we are trying to integrate with as many uh, industrial 3D printers as possible uh, within a short amount of time. And that will enable us to work with uh, many big companies, enterprise companies. So uh, long term for us is we see AI Sync as, a, as an operating system for uh, all industrial 3D printers. Okay. But all? Like everything? Um, eventually everything, yes. Okay, okay. That's, really? that's a very yeah, ambitious, ambitious. Yeah, you, you woke up everybody this like, I'm like, well, this is kind of coming to an end. Thank you. <laughs> There's people listening at home, like, wait, what? What, what did you say? <laughs> but that, but that's like, is that a different game? Isn't it like, because you guys are, you have no competition. Well, you have, okay, you have competition, but you don't have competition. You know, you're like, um, you're, you're highly specialized in a niche of a niche that's growing incredibly rapidly. And isn't that the laser like focus? You know, isn't that going to, like, do we grow with a niche? Or you guys are just yeah. like, no, no, we can no, have I all think of it. You're right. Like, initially, it's about focus um, and execution, fast execution. Like, that's our biggest advantage mm-hmm. compared to bigger corporations yeah. uh, in the space. Yeah. So um, what the customers are telling us today is, okay, if, if we work with this company, we'll make a request, and in six months, maybe they will tell us if mm-hmm. they will build it or not. In our mm-hmm. case, the, the client make a, makes a request, and in maybe tomorrow or the day after, they have it built in the platform. So the reason we can go so fast is because we are 100% focused on additive and the segment mm-hmm. of additive. But as we move forward, uh, and as the market evolves, uh, what the customers are asking us to do is uh, to become more of a platform uh, that can support different systems. Because only then the real uh, value proposition becomes uh, um, uh, accessible to the customer. Um, mm-hmm. So the the problem I explained before, like they have twenty different machines and they have to learn, not only learn but is also a big risk of losing IP. For example, if uh, one of their people leaves the company, then they have to train someone else. Um, so there's a lot of uh, inefficiencies in the big organizations uh, to manage mm-hmm. their production, audit production. And for that reason, we are trying to integrate with many printer types. I, I, th- I think it's also uh, one thing I did want to ask you is I'm triggered by this a little because, like, it's triggered in a good way, right? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, and I'm just thinking about this thing is, is in, like, how far do you want to go? Do you want this to be, like, you know, because you could integrate much more into the design space, you can integrate much more into simulation, you could, you know, open yourself up to working with all sorts of simulation software, like, uh, you know, what, what's the. Uh, thing here right yeah i think the boundaries for us are um cad starting from cad so we don't want to get involved in design because that's up to the customer um anything to do with the machine right so okay we have a design how the machine is going to print it and how how is it going to monitor it um quality reports uh post-processing so starting with the design to the end of production is like the the the, the, um, spectrum we want to cover and Mm -hmm. um Cover it initially with the robotic arms, tank gun trees, and then other types of 3D printers. 
Yeah, because I think a lot of people like don't realize, of course, that these a lot of these robot companies also offer gantry solutions, right? And also, you can combine a gantry with a robot, right? You know, and even a mobile gantry with a robot, right? Yeah, crazy talk. Right. That's crazy talk. You can't have robots doing things like that. Yeah, <laughs> no, but yeah, but imagine the volumes and the type of things you can make with that kind of versatility. Well, yeah, it's, uh, was it University of New Hampshire who printed a boat yeah. using that method using a gantry uh, FDM printing system? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, uh, and uh, I'm really excited, by the way, in the large format thing about these boat hulls and hulls for, you know, U.S. military things and moves is, is one of the most exciting things for me. I mean, I don't expect that to be for everyone. But uh, uh, and then I have another question. That's a very architect question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we see regularly all these news releases about these 3D printed buildings. Right. And we know that a lot of these 3D printing buildings will never be made. And there's this thing that I've been thinking about for a couple of years about the Stoffwechsel thing. Right. Uh, like there's a Stoffwechsel in architecture where like we, for example, we have walls and we kind of then will use patterns on the walls and we'll make wallpaper to remind us of the carpets we used to hang on the walls, right? I know you know what that is, the dog and the door is for Tapestry? the listeners stuff. It's, it's Stoffwechsel, it's called. And then, and then you know, it's like this, for example, these brick buildings or the buildings we see now, there's a, a metal uh, kind of frame. They put concrete against it and then they stick stone the glue stone to the side of it to make it look like a stone buildings we used to have, you know? <clears throat> so we do this. And and I've been really worried that a lot of the architects that are looking at the medium format and large format things are coming to the party with their own ideas rather than looking at what's really great about the technology and what the technology can do. You know, the, the, is that also something that you've noticed that, that, uh, as an architect or? Yeah, I think so. When, when you use 3D printing as a technology to make buildings and uh, even things like furniture like it, it it brings a new kind of architectural aesthetic to it uh, mm-hmm. and some designers like that aesthetic some people mm-hmm. like to hide it so um, so for example you can produce a part and CNC mill it to make it look like it's injection molded uh, because mm-hmm. the traditional ma- way of making furniture is injection molding but some designers I think uh, which are which are very very successful are using it to their advantage to uh, expose uh, in a way enhance that uh, artifacts that that's coming from the manufacturing process, and I think that's a good thing. So because it's a new technology, it's a new fabrication method. Uh, it needs to have a different type of design thinking behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole landscape needs to adapt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's just, I, I'm just surprised at how that's not happening. You know. And how that will take so much time. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, just, I just want to notice that, that you notice that too. I have a quick question. I'm curious uh, of your opinion on concrete printing in general. Like, do you think it's a, a flawed technology, or do you think that it's uh, it has a, a a real future? I think concrete printing is uh, has a big potential, um, and uh, at the moment there's a lot of activity, like a lot of funding and businesses growing um, to do. So the, we see two types of concrete printing actually. One is the one that's happening in the factory uh, offsite. And the other one is like printing on-site with big countries. And as a business, we are more focused on uh, factory uh, production at the moment for um, the reasons of being, uh, like what we discussed before, being more focused. But uh, yeah, I mean, printing buildings with a country. um, I mean, the the problems I I see with that at the moment is, yeah, a lot of post-processing is required. And uh, sometimes the cost of actually setting it up and automating it and uh, post-processing it is is actually even costlier than uh, making it with 
brick and mortar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so, definitely, it has huge potential. Like um, in theory, it works. Uh, it's just someone needs to develop the tech and the software and uh, the materials, and uh, eventually it will happen. One day it will become yeah mainstream. And with so much funding, I'm sure that future is near. Uh, but mm-hmm. as a business, we are we are more focused in factory automation at the moment. So we are not going so much into um, yeah uh, printing on site kind of scenarios. Makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, Dagan, thank you so much. It's, it's been uh, it's been wonderful hearing about you guys. I think I think your startup. I just I don't think a lot of people have heard of you guys in the the broader market. But I, I really think you're going to play a really stellar role, a central role in this um, in the, the the development of a, at least a large format and and, uh, and the medium format, the large large scale printing we're going to see out there. So uh, and uh, yeah, wish you a lot of luck with that. It's going to be really great to see that. Joris, thank you very much. It was great to speak with you. And uh, yeah, uh, have a nice day. All right. Thank you, Max. Yeah, always. Thank, thank you. you, Max. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.